0: Thank you, Mark. I mean, Melvin. My my senility is rubbing off on other people, so it's all right. Good morning. Glad you are here with us at Our Lord's Community Church. We are a church on mission with Jesus, and we're seeing that he is establishing his kingdom in the hearts of people. My name is Brock Bingaman. I'm one of the pastors here. I go by Rock, too, I guess guess we can make up names. I want to share something on a personal note here before we look into the scriptures at the kingdom of God in the book of Daniel. Um, a friend of mine died this week. Some of you are familiar with Paul Cain, a gentleman. He was 89 years old and he went to be with the Lord the day before Valentine's this week. And I've been thinking on him and his life all week. Um, Paul was a profound person and friend of Jesus, and he impacted the church all over the country and all over the world through the prophetic ministry. And those of you who know his story, um, it didn't end well with Paul. And so I've been reflecting on his life, and he basically had some moral issues that surfaced, and some friends around him had to bring discipline and correction to him, heartbreaking situation over a decade ago. But he was my friend, and he was a human being, and so I've stayed close to him to, uh, to the end, and I'm actually going Friday to watch his body be buried in the ground, and I love him uh, deeply and appreciate um, him and his life and his service, 89 years um, of, of life. And there are two things that you learn from someone like Paul, and the first is we don't elevate one another in the church. It is always so unhealthy. It's unhelpful for the church, and it's unhelpful for the person that's elevated. And frankly, that's what happened with Paul Cain. His prophetic gift was so profound that the church elevated him. And we can't do that. And so I think even his death is significant because the Lord doesn't want prophetic people, prophetic celebrities. The Lord wants a prophetic church. All of us are called to hear the voice of God and share that with one another, are we not? So that's one thing I've been thinking about all week is God help us grow beyond that, that immaturity of lifting someone up and putting them on a pedestal. Another thing that I've been thinking about is we need community. We need one another. And Paul needed the church. He needed a spiritual family. He was traveling all the time and being elevated everywhere as an itinerant minister and it was not healthy for him. So, lessons to learn. Kathleen Blue's son, Travis Blue, and I are actually working on a documentary on the life of Paul Kane, and it's been a, a rough go the past couple of years, but we've got an amazing story. We're going to tell Paul's story and the story of the prophetic over the last 25 years, so I'll keep you posted on that. We're glad you're here with us today as we worship in song and as we study the scriptures together and celebrate the sacraments, the body and blood of Jesus. And we're in part seven of a series on the kingdom of God. And what we're doing is trying to further cultivate a vision of what the kingdom of God is, the rule and reign of God that breaks into human history at different times, and one day we'll see it will be fully established on the earth, right? So today we're in part seven. We've been exploring different pictures of the kingdom. And for those who have been here, you've heard that we've been in the Old Testament. And really, you, I'm, I'm suggesting that you can't understand the kingdom of God fully in the New Testament without looking at these pictures These glimpses of the kingdom, they're like building blocks that will help us. And so next week, we're actually going to shift gears and begin to look at the kingdom of God in the New Testament. But we've been doing these seven weeks, critical weeks, looking at these images so that we can better understand what God is doing in the New Testament. So as we do this, I just want to remind us, why are we doing this? Why are we looking at the kingdom of God for 12 weeks One reason is that we'll understand the overall narrative of the Bible more clearly. Is that happening for some of you? We'll see that from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament and from Matthew to the book of Revelation in the New Testament, it is a kingdom story from start to finish. The second reason we're doing this is because as you look at the message of the kingdom, it takes root in your heart. We become kingdom people. We don't just study it and learn about it. We actually practice the kingdom. We begin to realize, like we were doing this morning, we serve the king. He's bringing his kingdom, and we get to cooperate with him in establishing his kingdom, a kingdom of love and power and healing and transformation in the lives of people around us. It's a beautiful thing. And last week, we looked at Isaiah, and I mentioned we were going to look at two prophets. We looked at the Kingdom vision of Isaiah, and this week I want us to take a few minutes before our family meeting to look at a couple of pictures, two pictures actually, of the kingdom in the book of Daniel. It's rather difficult to take over a dozen chapters and kind of condense them, and so what I've chosen to do is just look at two snapshots in the book of Daniel. I was talking with Mike and he was saying he hasn't heard a message on Daniel in some time. So I think again, it is important to kind of dust off some of these these pictures, these images from the Old Testament and look at them. Daniel is an amazing book. It's about a man who lived in the sixth century BC, about 550 years before Jesus. And the book that he wrote unfolds in two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 talk about Daniel and his three friends. Some of us are familiar that they served in the court of Babylon and that these Jewish young men had the opportunity to serve the king in the context of other Babylonian wise men and leaders. Chapters 7 through 12, and again, this will make more sense. We're going to dip down into this in a moment, but chapters 7 through 12 convey four apocalyptic visions about human empires and God's kingdom. Some of you are saying, what is apocalyptic? Let me tell you. The word simply means to unveil or uncover, to reveal something. And the book of Daniel, catch this, is actually a book written for persecuted people. That is what apocalyptic literature is all about and Daniel is one of the first apocalyptic materials in the Bible and in the history of sacred literature here. So these apocalyptic visions that we're going to look at, let's say that together, apocalyptic, apocalyptic, right? Um, What they do is they kind of pull the veil back, and they remind God's people that though it looks like evil forces might prevail, God wins, So what Daniel is showing us here, and he's in the heart of Babylon. It's a dark place. Occultic forces are all around him. It is a sinister, tyrannical kingdom that's swallowing up other peoples across the earth. And so this apocalyptic vision that Daniel's laying out shows us that Daniel is actually a kingdom book. It's a kingdom manual that does two things. It reminds people that God is the sovereign Lord of history. That's the message of Daniel. And secondly, the book of Daniel as a manual, a practical manual, speaks to persecuted people and shows them how to live as the people of God. So you can study the book of Daniel and see he's committed to prayer. Hmm, he fasts. He lives a certain consecrated life before God, even in the heart of Babylon, in exile. He's been uprooted from his people. So it's a very practical book, actually. The idea that it's kind of heavenly-minded and of no earthly value is grossly misleading. I want to suggest, I don't want to overstate this, but listen to me. I think that American Christians are actually facing a Babylonian-type context. Do you feel it? If you're in touch with the media, if you are watching rampant evil, addiction, drugs, pornography, I mean, it is madness. It's madness. Again, we've already seen the Lord wins, and I'm not a doomsday preacher at all. I'm calling us to lift our eyes up and look to the good news, but I'm also calling us to wake up, and a book like Daniel has a prophetic word for us in an increasingly post-Christian milieu or context. This is the word of the Lord for us to live like Daniel, to raise children, to raise up our youth to live like Daniel in Babylon, to be fierce in faith and powerful. So my goal today, I want us to do two things, all right? I want us to look at these two key scenes in Daniel. The first is in chapter two, so you can open your Bible to Daniel chapter two. I'm going to read an excerpt from that, just a few verses, and then the second chapter we're going to look at is in Daniel chapter 7, and that's where I want to spend most of the time, this vision that he has of the ancient of days and one like the Son of Man. So as we look at the details, we're keeping the overall message in mind, aren't we? That the kingdom of God is being established in the earth. That's the overall message. So let's make sure that we don't get caught in the weeds, all of the details, the, minute, the minutia here. Daniel chapter 2. This here, and I'm going to read verses 31 through 35 in just a moment, but just a little bit of context. Does it help to have some context here? Chapter 2 is known as a royal court story. And this famous story that's oftentimes told in vacation Bible school and Sunday school and laid out on felt boards and these kinds of things. It's a a story about a contest. Who can interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream? But there's actually something really profound going on here. On a human level, we're seeing that it's a contest between David and his colleagues and these Babylonian sorcerers who use the dark arts and use magic to interpret dreams. So on the human level, we're seeing this battle between those two. On the spiritual level, we're seeing another confrontation between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the Pantheon, the collection of Babylonian deities. Who is the true God? That's the contest that's taking place in Daniel. And we'll see the answer to that. So chapter two here, it unfolds in multiple parts. The outline basically is King Nebuchadnezzar in verses one through 13 of chapter two. He has a disturbing dream and no one can interpret it. In verses 14 through 23, the second piece here, God intervenes in this crisis and sends Daniel. In the third section here, the one that we're going to look at, Daniel describes the content of the king's dream. He gets it by supernatural revelation. He doesn't just decipher it based on some kind of magical books, but the Lord actually speaks to him and he conveys the dream and the interpretation of the dream. In the next section, it shows the king's response to Daniel's interpretation. So let's focus on verses 31 through 35 here. And I will let you know, this is cryptic. This is unusual. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible is strange. If you've read Daniel, you know what I'm talking about. You read the book of Revelation, it is odd. It is a wild world of symbols. And the reason we're looking at Daniel is because it helps shed light on the book of Revelation, as you'll see in a few weeks. So let's look at this, Daniel 2, 31 through 35. Look at this word picture here that Daniel is laying out about the earthly kingdoms and the kingdom of God. Your majesty looked, this is Daniel speaking, and he's talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, There before you, in your dream, King Nebuchadnezzar, stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. So he's describing this massive figure, and he says, While you were watching King Nebuchadnezzar, a rock was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. Look what happens. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. I've got a slide here. This is something that I would show if I were teaching in a college context. I would show a slide like this because it's so graphic we have to picture it. And I don't want us to get lost in the detail. I'm glad that the font is so small that over there on the right, you can't start reading the dates. It's not the point. The point is to give us a word picture here that is being traced out in chapter two. And essentially the message here is Daniel is interpreting this for Nebuchadnezzar and he's saying, the Lord of history knows how history is going to unfold. And you, king, are the gold head here. You're the one leading the Babylonian Empire and then this series of a sequence of successive empires, including the Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, and then this mysterious mingled empire at the end. The point is not that this lays out some kind of schema that we follow and we know in the year 2025 that now the next empire, that is not the point at all, that's a misreading. What is being conveyed here is that God, Yahweh, is the Lord of history, and he sees and he knows and he rules. That's the point of this, right? We get into all kinds of strange interpretations when we lose that. Now, this is a theology of history that Daniel is doing here. It's one of the first, where he's interpreting human history through the lens of God, through the lens of God's being and God's saving activity in the earth. Now, what is interesting here, and let's look at the next slide here, is this is the point of the story. Not how human history lays out and we interpret it according to this hard fast scheme, but this is the message that Daniel is conveying through Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The Lord was speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar and saying, you have an earthly kingdom, other earthly kingdoms will follow yours, but there is a kingdom that will come from heaven like a rock and strike at the root of prideful, arrogant, tyrannical kingdoms like Babylon and Rome and Greece and Persia. That is the message that's being conveyed here. And that is what this artist's rendition plays here. There is a rock, a stone that comes from heaven and it's not cut with human hands. It has no human origin and the point is God's kingdom will be established. And then once this stone strikes the image, what happens? It expands into a massive mountain, which is another image of an empire, a heavenly empire. Some of the early church fathers, one of my favorite, there's a guy named John Chrysostom And his name means John the Golden Mouth because he was such a great teacher and preacher. He wrote in the fourth century and he says that the rock is Christ. He says it's abundantly clear from the New Testament that Christ is sent and that he will come and he himself will establish the kingdom on the earth. And that like Revelation 11 says, which we'll look at in a few weeks, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he alone will reign forever and ever. So that's the message of Daniel 2, that God, through his Christ, through the promised Messiah, will rule and reign over all other empires. It is a beautiful message here that's being communicated to a pagan king. God loves people. God loved this Babylonian king and actually gave him some insight, some revelation. Touched his heart, actually. A second image here, I want us to look at Daniel 7. Chapter 2 was a court narrative and an apocalyptic vision. In Daniel 7, we find a dream report. That's what it's called. Scholars call this an ancient dream report. And it unfolds in two parts. There's lots of congruity here between the different visions, but in chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, Daniel has a dream, a vision of the night regarding four beasts that emerge from a sea, and the sea symbolizes for the ancient Hebrew people the nations, and so these four beasts are emerging from the sea, and in seven fifteen through 28, Daniel interprets the dream. And again, much like he did in chapter 2, he's showing that these four beasts represent four successive empires. That's the point. But there's something else that happens that's tucked here in chapter 7. It's not just about worldly leaders. It's not the Lord saying, Daniel, I'm showing you what's going to happen in human history. Just like all apocalyptic literature, that veil gets pulled back. But look at what Daniel gets to see. It's absolutely staggering. Again, over 500 years before Christ, he has this vision. So let's look at chapter 7, verse 9 through 14. And there's a little parenthetical in here that we'll skip over, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. I'll let you know where it is. But just picture this as I'm reading. As I looked, thrones were set in place. So he's having this series of night visions, and in this one he sees thrones being set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. This is that little parenthetical that references something that happened in a previous vision. I kept looking until the beast, this particular beast, was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into blazing fire. The other beast, those empires, had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So back to the vision here at verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Daniel has yet another Strange vision of these beasts, and the veil is pulled back, and he sees the Lord of history, beginning at verse 9. So what I want us to do is look at a few of these highly symbolic elements of this vision. This vision engenders worship. It engendered worship in the heart of Daniel. He was struck by it. It engendered worship in the hearts of ancient Israelites, and it does with us as well. Look at verse 9. The first phrase there, thrones are set in place. You notice it's plural. Someone might say, I thought there was one God, one throne, one enthroned king. So there's something being suggested in this text here. There's actually thrones, plural. It's suggesting that God would share his divine rule with someone else who appears later in the vision. Look at the next phrase here, the Ancient of Days. A beautiful title. It only appears here in the Old Testament. And this title expresses that God, Yahweh, is a powerful, aged king. It emphasizes the eternality of God in contrast to the temporal kingdoms that come and go. God is the Ancient of Days. The next phrase here, what's it show? His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. Now, church, we don't literalize this stuff, all right? All that we have is language. All that we have are symbols to communicate who God is. We can't literalize this. It's not like God is sitting up there with white hair. These are all meant in the Hebrew language to convey the majesty of Did he have a vision? Yes. But when we literalize these things, it becomes problematic. This was meant to convey something, the mystery of who God is. His white clothing symbolizes his splendor and purity. And there are texts that speak about this. Isaiah 1.18. We looked at Isaiah last week. And he talks about the purity, whiteness like wool that's reflected, that's emanated from God. His white hair speaks of majesty and experience. So those of you with white hair out there can say, wow, I am like the ancient of days here. I have some age, some experience, probably not as much wisdom, so don't let it go to your head. His throne, look at the next phrase here, was flaming with fire. And I want us to put this image up here. This is an artist's rendition and it's falls short, but it at least helps to some extent for us to see the artist rendering this a flaming throne and wheels all ablaze. And the reason I do this, I walk through these phrases, is because there's meaning tucked in here. Fire often accompanies, if you remember in recent weeks, it accompanies the divine presence. What is it that the Lord appears to Moses in And speaks through in Exodus 3. Fire. God speaks and declares. He's the great I am. We learned that word theophany. A manifestation of God. Well that's happening again here. And you can trace this out all through scripture. Where the presence of God comes. There is fire. His throne. The place where he rules. Is filled with fire. What about these strange wheels. That are ablaze. Some of you may have read another prophet, Ezekiel, and he has some of these amazing, wild visions of God that also include wheels that are ablaze with fire. What's this suggesting here is that God is not stuck. God can move and see and turn. It conveys for the ancient Hebrew mind, omniscience, God can see anywhere and move. He's not stuck in some temple somewhere. His throne is one that's mobile. So this communicates divine knowability and divine mobility. Look at what's flowing out from this blazing throne here. It's a river of fire. This only appears in the book of Daniel. In all of scripture, this is the only place that speaks about a river of fire coming from the presence of God. We find this in other places in scripture suggested that fire comes from heaven when Elijah calls on God, that this is the only time we get to see a river, a torrent of fire coming out of God's presence. What is that? I'm gonna suggest a couple of things here. This consuming fire is God's love. Already in Daniel, we're seeing that this is an awesome, terrifying, awe-inspiring God But this is the fire of love that flows out from the heart of God. And it's good news for those who open their hearts. If you open your heart to the river of fire that pours out of God's presence, it will consume the negative things in your life. It will purify you. It will make you like Christ. But for those who close their hearts, who seal themselves off from the consuming fire of God's presence, It becomes a force of discipline. So we're seeing here the fiery presence of God emanating from the Lord. And then thousands upon thousands, that next phrase here, are attending him. And Daniel's trying to just say, I can't even calculate how many are surrounding the Lord's throne right now. It's kind of like a child would say millions and millions and millions and billions and trillions. He's saying thousands and ten thousands, and he's saying there are so many innumerable angelic beings serving him, I can't count. And then we see the court is seated and the books were opened, and these books are records. Again, it's conveying that this ancient of days knows all things. The Ancient of Days knows the action of all the world leaders, of all the people that they lead. The Lord knows us. Malachi 3.16 mentions this, a scroll of remembrance. And again, keep in mind, this is the God of love. Yes, we're accountable to the Ancient of Days, but the Lord keeps account of us and we are covered in the blood of the Messiah, covered in the blood of one like a son of man, which we're going to look at here. So the scene shifts. Look at verse 13, and we'll end with this here in a moment. The scene shifts to what Daniel says. In my vision at night, I look, and one like a son of man comes with the clouds of heaven. So it's letting us know, along with fire, which signifies the divine presence, the clouds also signify This has to do with God. That same cloud that would come and fill the temple, this has to do with the glory of God. One like a son of man comes, and he's covered in the glory of God, and he comes with the radiance of God's being. He's seeing a vision of the promised Messiah. It's interesting, because if you see that four-letter word there, before son of man, what is it? One like a son of man. So he resembles human beings and Daniel is seeing this. But he says he's a lot like a human but he's more than human. So this text is suggesting here the humanity and the divinity of the coming Messiah. What's interesting is Jesus takes this language right here out of all the places in the Old Testament. He uses this phrase of himself. He says in Mark ten forty five, for the Son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, I am the son of man that Daniel saw in chapter 7. Stunning insight here into understanding the person of Jesus. It's a, a way for Jesus to subtly convey that he is indeed the king, the promised one that Daniel saw. In this vision. And he approaches the Ancient of Days, he's led into his presence, and what happens, church? He's given authority, glory, and sovereign power. One commentator says this Daniel witnesses the investiture of this one, this Son of Man, with absolute power and supreme authority as sovereign over all humanity. The Ancient of Days grants the Son of Man absolute power, and the nations worship him. So what we're seeing in these two visions here, over and over again, in different language, in different images, is that God is the Lord of human history. We can trust him, just as Daniel did, even in exile, even when we're surrounded by darkness and forces against us. We can trust God, the God of Israel, and his Christ, the Son of Man. This is glorious here. So to conclude, the story that we're learning about here is a kingdom story. All of Scripture is a kingdom story. From Genesis to Revelation, we're seeing, even here, that the stone that comes from heaven in Nebuchadnezzar's dream has to do with the kingdom of God. And that the Son of Man will rule and reign one day in the future. He will establish the kingdom of God. We're also seeing that we are called to be kingdom people. We are called to saturate our minds with this story. The story of scripture. The word of God. I don't know about you, but this makes me want to get into the scriptures and study it with new vigor. This is a kingdom story. And I get to be part of it. And you get to be part of it. Even if our lives are under construction and a mess, the Lord says, you're a kingdom person. You're a kingdom person. I'm a kingdom person. And we're called to carry the kingdom of God. So what I want us to do here as we close, let's stand and I want us to pray a passage that comes to mind as we look at this. We'll end with this here. I'm gonna pray a phrase and then you follow me. It's from Matthew 6. It's the Lord's Prayer, and we're only going to pray the opening three or four phrases here, but I'll pray and then you pray after me as a response to these kingdom visions in Daniel. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. heaven. I want us to take 10 seconds here in silence to just stand before the awesome Ancient of Days and the Son of Man and honor him in absolute silence. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you are awesome and amazing and full of glory. We love you back today. And we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.